0: Good morning. Um, my name is David Scott. I'm the student ministry pastor here. Um, David Eldridge is out of town this week. For some of you, the best news you're going to hear today is that he will be back next week. So enjoy that um, if you want. Uh, I don't. I don't get in here much at 11 o'clock anymore. Usually I am up the street, so that means I don't know a lot of you really well. Some of you I know really well, uh, but a lot of you I don't, and uh, that can make communication a little more difficult. It's hard. We need to get to know each other a little bit. One of the things. That I've always been encouraged to do is you want to let people know a little bit about you. So maybe they'll find you more likable before you speak. I don't know if that's what's going to happen, but we'll give it a shot. Uh, so my name is David Scott. I am the student ministry pastor. Like I said, I work with, primarily with middle schoolers and high schoolers in our church. I'm 37 years old for a couple more months. Uh, I am from Canton, Georgia, just north of here. Any Canton people? I went to Sequoia High School. No. Good. Warm crowd. Somebody. Who's back? You're kinda, yeah. All right. So, um, so yeah. So a little bit about uh, that's my wife Jane. So if you don't like me, you'll you'll like Jane. She's the best. Um, so uh, maybe if you do like me, you'll like her. But you'll like her either way, I think. Uh, we have three children and two dogs right now. Maybe two unofficially. You don't want to talk about it. All right. Cool. Maybe if you want a dog, maybe you should talk to us. Um, so. Uh, if you want to know uh, some similarities between myself and David Eldridge, we're both named David, we both love Jesus, and we both worn this microphone. And that is about it. Uh, we don't have much else in common. That's not true. We love you. Um, we love being at Stonebridge, but we're different. We're different in a number of ways. David Eldridge uh, is somebody who likes to really think things through and be cautious uh, before he makes decisions or before he says someone, and I go a little bit of a different route than that. Um, my learning style is trial and error, just in case. Um, if you've ever seen that, it might, be why, it might be why I work so well with middle schoolers and high schoolers. I'm not sure. It has not changed since I was in middle school or high school. I actually texted David yesterday about something I wanted to say in the service, and I said, hey, what do you think if I say this, which happens a lot between us, And expecting that he was going to give me some, like, clear indicator of how he would feel about that. And he texted me back. He said, I trust you, which is how he deals with things, because that means it sounds really encouraging, right? But what it means is when he gets back, that he can either say, I was right to trust you, or I shouldn't have trusted you. So he gets out of it anyway. See, thoughtful. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, this week we are still in the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 21 towards the end. Uh, if you don't know, uh, or if you haven't been here uh, the past few weeks, Paul has been moving towards Jerusalem. Uh, and there's a lot of debate about why he's moving towards Jerusalem or should he be moving towards Jerusalem. But ultimately, uh, the facts are this. Paul feels like God has something specific for him to do in Jerusalem. He will not be deterred. He's laser-focused, and he believes it will be difficult. It seems like he believes it will be difficult to the degree that he may never leave again. He he might uh, die after he goes to Jerusalem. So he's been visiting people and talking to them about it. Uh, we've gone all through that. Last week, he got into Jerusalem, and he met with some of the um, elders of the church in Jerusalem, and they tried to uh, deal with these issues that were calling con- causing controversy uh, for Paul. And we're going to look a little bit more out that, I mean, at that uh, today. But uh, the passage we're going to look at uh, has two really specific themes. One of those is the idea of a conversion, a conversion experience. We're going to look at Paul's conversion experience. And then the other is the idea that God challenges a lot of established norms when it comes to how we think about God. So when I was thinking of illustrations to, uh, th- that we could talk about, I was reminded of a video that my wife actually sent me a couple of weeks ago. Um, that-, that deals with those two issues. So we're going to watch that video. It's about three or four minutes, and uh, then we'll jump into the passage. We good?
1: You ready? I was born into a Muslim family um, my parents were leaders in the mosque and I met these two Christians at my grad school we just realized okay we definitely are both very strong in our faith but we can't both be right we can both be wrong like logically in my mind it's like okay we can both be wrong about Jesus for sure but we can't both be right so we sort of resolved that we wanted to figure out what truth is and secretly secretly I wanted to convert him, massively. I totally wanted to convert him to Islam because anytime I would debate anybody about, you know, religion, I would always win. <laughs> and so he gave me a Bible, I gave him a Quran, and we started to just sort of do our own research. And I would come with my bullet points and he would come with his. And um, truth be told, you know, since I was you know uh, an american muslim being surrounded by non-muslims of course i knew exactly what i believed why and had all the arguments even though i had felt that i had succeeded in showing him that christianity was flawed and that islam was true i didn't have that satisfaction i wanted some sort of proof for the first time in my life and so i just continued to pray continued to pray and um you know i would fast and i would just cry out night and day to god to allah the only god that i knew To show people that he was the truth, I started to just really have a lot of torment. I just thought maybe I was going crazy for the first time, but it was like I couldn't think anymore. And especially as somebody studying to be a doctor and, you know, science background, to lose your mind is really. A very low point, to say the least. So there was one day uh, where I was probably at my lowest point. I was just crying, praying to Allah, and saying, "I can't do this one more day." And that same day, I got a text message from my friend. He had been praying for me all along, and his church actually had been praying too, down south. And he, his pastor actually had brought um, or had typed up bullet points from the book by Lee Strobel called The Case for Christ. And so because I was such a, at such a low point at that point, I was like, I'll read anything. Why not? It gave so much significant proof for the historicity of the cross and resurrection. And I started to read the Bible again. I was reading it as though it actually could have happened. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. And then I called, why don't you just ask, Jesus to come into your heart if you're wondering and curious you have nothing to lose and you know little did she know if a Muslim asks Jesus into their heart it's hell for eternity no coming back you cannot come back from that so I just looked up at the heavens and I said Allah I don't know who, you're, who you are Allah I don't know what's real whoever you are though I want to give my life to you if you're Jesus you can come into my heart the next morning I woke up and all the torment was gone. So I thought to myself, okay, logic brain, I'll just, I'm gonna really give this exploration of the Gospels three or four years of my life, and I'm gonna really like look into it to see if it's real. I'm gonna stay a Muslim, of course, I would never leave Islam, but I just wanna give this a chance. And so I just basically went to church that Sunday and some signs had happened that week all pointing to Jesus, and that Sunday morning, the pastor was preaching, and people were raising their hands, and I just kind of sat through it, but my heart just wanted to worship, and when the altar call came, we all bowed our heads, and the pastor just said, I feel like there's someone in here that wants to give their life to Jesus, but they don't even know what that means, and they're really scared, and I just said, enough is enough. It's taking me more faith to not believe in Jesus than to believe in him.
0: He's my first experience with love. Come on, right? <laughs> Let's just, let me just, y'all can go home if you want. Um, it's good. My first experience of love. Every time I choke up a little bit, I'm not the kind of guy uh, who chokes up that often. Um, so uh, we're looking at this passage. Um, we'll, we'll come back and talk a little bit about that video. Um, in a bit, but we're looking at this passage, and just to set it up for you, uh, Paul's gone to Jerusalem, he's met with the elders, the elders are trying to deal with this issue, um, because Jewish people in Jerusalem think Paul is telling people to stop being Jewish, is telling Jews to stop being Jewish, um, and there's a lot of confusion about what he's doing and what he's saying, Paul's not doing that, uh, they try to leverage this experience to show people in Jerusalem that Paul's not doing that, so they go and they perform this Uh, Jewish rite in the temple uh, with Paul at the centerpiece of it. That gets confused, and there's this riot, and this mob comes to the temple and grabs Paul, and it gets out of hand, and so they go get the Roman guard. So the Roman guard shows up, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. They don't know who Paul is. They just know people are upset, and so they're trying to question Paul. They can't hear him because it's so loud, and where we pick it up, they've basically pulled Paul out to the side and they're trying to figure out what's going on so this is in chapter 21 starting in verse 37 it says as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks he asked the commander may I say something to you do you speak Greek he replied aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago like how off is that right like, they they're so confused about what's going on that they pulled Paul they're going to arrest him they're not even sure who he is Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he spoke to them in Aramaic. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and a highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said that God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. So two observations on this passage and then uh, two of what I think are applications for us and then we'll respond. Uh, I have a friend who reminds me a lot of times when I open the Bible, I can get really me centered and me focused. And I can think, what does the Bible want to tell me about me? What does the Bible want to tell me about my day? What does the Bible want to tell me about my life? I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But I have a friend who regularly reminds me um, that while the Bible is primarily for me, it's not primarily about me. It's it's about God. And it's about what God is doing uh, throughout creation and throughout time. And and as we look at this passage, I I think you see a struggle there of, of people trying to figure out who is this about. Um, In the midst of this, we see that God's got an incredible plan, and we see different responses to it. So we're going to look at those two different responses. Uh, First is Paul's response um, to what God is doing. Um, And and just the the first thing I notice, and I I don't know if if this applies specifically to you or not, but it's just something I notice, is that Paul doesn't get goaded into defending himself. And, And I find that incredible. When I look at my own heart, when I look at our culture, so Paul's being falsely accused, right? People are saying things that aren't true. He's being misunderstood, right? Everyone's wrong in this situation. Paul gets an opportunity to speak out on his own behalf, and Paul does not decide to defend himself, right? He doesn't say, you guys don't know what you're talking about. He doesn't say, you guys are completely wrong. I'm not doing that with Jewish people, right? He doesn't do any of that is that Paul grounds himself in the Lord rather than his own self-defense. Paul realizes that, that life is God's story that we are in, and Paul realizes that he has a moment that he can make about himself, or he can make it about God's great plan. And he makes it about God's great plan. I just find that inspiring because I don't know how often I choose that, to be honest with you. Uh, the, the next thing I notice is that this is the second time in Acts that we get to hear Paul's conversion story. And then we'll hear it a third time, a little bit down the road. And what's interesting to me about that is, is it makes sense that Paul would tell that story multiple times because that's his story. But it's interesting that Luke doesn't just save space, right? That Luke never stops and says, hey, so Paul told the story of how he was converted on the road to Damascus. And, and I think that, I don't know that, but I think that Luke realizes what, what a lot of theologians realize today, and that's that Paul's conversion is a strong apologetic for the Christian faith. If you don't know what an apologetic is, it's, it's, not, it's not the study of apologizing. It is, it is explanation. It is reason. There's a Greek word, apologia, that means to give an account of, to give a reason for, uh, that we read about in the New Testament saying we need to be able to give a reason for our faith. And, and I think Luke recognizes that, that Paul's conversion is an apologetic. It, it's, it's a reason that is often confounding uh, if you look up if you just search if you just googled paul 's conversion on the Damascus road, you will see that people across time uh, conservative theologians liberal theologians atheists, theists have have tried to deal with what paul 's conversion is and what it means because because it raises a lot of questions it raises a lot of a, a lot of issues that you have to deal with because it 's a historical fact, right? The, the facts of who Paul was before he was converted and who he was after his, he was converted are not disputed. People may dispute why he was converted, but they don't dispute the person. And if you look at Paul's life, it's difficult because a lot of people would say that the reason that you would convert to a faith, any faith, would be because you had a bad life and you wanted a better life. And Paul bucks that trend completely. By worldly standards, Paul had an incredible life. Right? By worldly standards, Paul's life was better without Jesus. Paul had knowledge. He was trained. He mentions Gamaliel here because all of the Jewish people would have said, Whoa, Gamaliel. Gamaliel of his day. So Paul had trained and been given knowledge. He had privilege. Paul had zeal. A lot of times people uh, will convert because they feel dead inside and, and faith awakens something within them. That was not the case with Paul. He did not feel dead inside at all. He felt zeal and passion Paul felt purpose in his life. He wasn't wondering what the purpose of life was. Paul had clear purpose in his life, and Paul had power. Paul had all the things that a lot of times we will excuse conversion for. And so it's it's tough. You have to deal with this issue. Why? Right? And And I think that's why both Luke and Paul feel like it's important to share this story again and again and again, because it defies practical explanation. It defies mathematical explanation for why Paul did what he did. And what Paul says is, I had all these things, and then I experienced the living God. And it changed me radically. He said, that's the thing. If you want to know what made me go from this place here to this crazy place over here, it's that I experienced the living God. And I think it's also noteworthy that Paul didn't just experience the living God and say, okay, cool, I have everything together. I'm just going to go on my way. But but that God connects him to Ananias for help. That's another thing that I observe in this passage is that that even Paul, who had all these things going for him, he he needed help. He needed help to understand what was going on. He needed help to understand what was next in his life. And, And through all of that, Paul had come to embrace a radical obedience to God. A willingness to say, I know that this is difficult, but I move ahead. I know that people around me say this is crazy, but I move ahead. And as Paul shares with the people his story, you notice how much he, he identifies with them. He speaks in their language. He says to them, I was just like you. He says, in fact, I was angrier than you. I was so angry that I presided over people's killings. That's how angry I was And within that you you can hear paul saying to these people "I, I I didn't experience god because I was special I experienced god because I was available And he's going to go on into that when he mentions the gentiles Because that's the story, right? The gentiles were available and the holy spirit was meeting them in incredible ways and then you get into the second response, which for us is really just one sentence right now, but it's an incredible sentence, right? Where the crowd just flips. They move from silence to rage. The word that kept coming up this week when I was talking with people about it was disgust. The crowds are disgusted that God would favor the Gentiles. And I don't know about you, but that's, that's difficult for me to understand. There's part of me just, just because of who I am, the time I live in, the place I live in, the idea that people would be that disgusted that God would want to work with and connect with another group of people is, is foreign to me. And I think it's actually similar to, to why a lot of people, um, in, in my lifestyle and position struggle to understand conflicts in the Middle East. There's this struggle. Why, why can't people come together? Right. How can there be such animosity? But, but that's a, that, that's a bit. Uh, of what the Israelites are feeling in this situation. So for the Israelites, the Gentiles didn't just represent a different people group. They represented people outside of the nation of Israel, people outside of these Jewish people, and all the people outside of the Jewish people had treated them so poorly across time that poorly isn't a fair word. They had enslaved them. They had beaten them. They had killed them. They had forgotten them. They had taken them out of their land and put them in another land just for their sake. All of these terrible things Things had happened, and the one thing that kept Israel going was, we're the chosen people of God. It's the one thing that kept them breathing was this belief, though, that everybody else hates us. God has chosen us. God has privileged us. And it had held them together for so long. And here's Paul looking at them and, and what they used to help them even understand and survive their persecution. And he's saying it's different now. It's different now. You can imagine um, what what it's like when you're in a space where you say, I thought things were this way, but now they aren't. Most of us call that having children. <laughs> right? If you haven't had children yet. It's it, You're going to be different. But the rest of us, I was talking with a friend last night and she was talking about the shoes she had bought for her son and how for some reason she had decided I'm never I always said I was never going to buy my son shoes with characters on them. I don't know why that was a thing, but for her, that was a thing. And she found out pretty quickly, you just buy the shoes that fit, right? And, and that's just what happens. I thought things were a certain way, and, and now they aren't. And, and when that happens to you, even on a small level, it's disconcerting, right? We laugh about it right now, but it's really uncomfortable. For the Jewish people, this was happening to their whole world. And it was blowing up in front of them. I thought things were this way, but they weren't. But it wasn't that God had changed. It's actually that they had forgotten that God's mission was for them, but it wasn't solely or primarily about them. They were a part of God's mission. This wasn't a change by God. Way back in the beginning in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 22, God says to their father, their their heritage, he says, here's what I'm doing. I'm choosing you, but I'm choosing you to bless all the nations of the earth. And throughout the Old Testament it says this, it says all of this is happening so that everyone could know. See, they had forgotten that God's promise, though it was for them, was not just for them. And before we judge them, let, let's all be reminded that anytime we limit Jesus' love or Jesus' reach to any group, right to any country. Right, We run into some danger. We run into danger of becoming that way. When we start to think that God blessing us is the same as God privileging us over and above other people. That's what happens. The the craziest part of this passage to me is that they think Paul is the one that's stirring up all this anger in them. But if you look at Romans 11.11, it actually says salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. And it's actually God that is stirring them up in their hearts, right? God's desire is to say, look what I'm doing over here. You've forgotten me. You forgot something about what I was doing. And yes, you keep all these things and it's beautiful and it's good, but you've forgotten part of my promise and now it's come fulfilled in this man, Jesus. And what I'm going to try to do is stir you up, right? If you get angry, you get active most of the time. And he says, I want to stir you up to envy so that you'll come back to me. But what happens for Israel, and I find that it happens in my life way too often, is that when God is seeking to stir up envy or jealousy, my pride masks that jealousy and it converts it to rage. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just go read Facebook for a little bit and you'll see it. Right? So what about us? So what about us? We have two observations of what's happening, in, in, in two applications, what does that mean for us? First, uh, regarding Paul's conversion, I would I would encourage you to wrestle with this question: What do you do with Paul? Particularly, I would encourage you to wrestle with this question: If if either you would say, I I I don't believe Christianity, I go to church, I don't believe Christianity, um, or Christianity's fine, but it's just this thing. Uh, Among other things and and you kind of have that position I was talking with a friend a couple of weeks ago had that position where he said the reason that i'm a christian Or the reason that you're a christian was what he was saying Is because you were raised in a certain place in a certain time and that's what you became And if you were raised in the middle east, you would have become something else And if you were raised in japan, you would have become something else And if you were raised over here, you would have become that you guys have heard this argument before, right? It's a common argument. It's that it's that we are nurtured By our environment into our faith and what I would say to that person is, well, what do you do with Paul? What do you do with Paul? Because that's not Paul at all. If, if Paul was just a product of his nurturing, Paul would have never done what he did. Right? And, and, and so what happens then is we flip the script and we say, well, okay, somebody's in crisis and what they have doesn't work, so they rebel and, and they go after something else. Well, again, to that person, I would say, well, well what do you do with Paul and why are you moving the target? What do we do with this story? And and stories like it. And and there's that strategic part of me that, that asks the question, well, there are people that have converted from one faith to another faith all across time and all across the world. And I think that's fine, but it doesn't excuse you from dealing with the issue. And I would encourage you to deal with that issue within yourself if that's just become an easy out for you. I would encourage you to wrestle through that and say, well, then why? Well, then why? Not to just embrace Christianity wholesale because of this guy, Paul, but to deal with the issue on the whole and see where that leads you. The second, the second thing I think we can see in Paul's conversion story and the way he tells it is that it's the living God that leads someone to radical worship and obedience. It's the living God that leads you. It's not showing up somewhere a couple of times a week. It's not reading this book a lot. Although those are places where you can meet the living God. It it is the living God that moves the heart to radical obedience and worship. You saw that in the story of this young woman, right? She had all these facts. She had all this stuff. She had all these readings, but it was God moving on her heart that changed everything. She even had a plan, right? I'm going to do this for this amount of time. And then she experienced God, and it changed everything. And I want that to serve as an encouragement to you, particularly if you walk in this room week after week, or you walk into church, or you read your Bible, and you're like, I don't get it. Everybody else gets it, but I don't get it. First, that's not true. That's a false narrative. If lots of people are thinking that, it's not true. But the second thing I would say to you is this. God doesn't want to leave you there. There aren't second-class and first-class Christians. Paul says, I, I was just like you. Paul didn't have some bad conversion story and then he got to experience Jesus. Paul was doing all the right stuff and God met him and it changed his life forever and God wants to meet you. Now, I'm a gut person. This is another difference between uh, David Eldridge and I is that I move a lot from my feelings. They say you're a feeler or a thinker. I'm a feeler. Um, And so for me, um, it it is experiencing the Lord that kind of moves me forward in worship and obedience. But David... Uh, Eldridge is is a thinker and uh, for him he's mentioned this before Sometimes it is choosing radical obedience and radical worship that actually leads him to experience the presence of the Lord And so I would encourage you to pursue both of those I would encourage you to pursue both of those if you're a thinker and you're like, I I just don't I don't get it I haven't had that experience. So maybe I don't have that experience. What I would encourage you to do is to commit yourself Right, it's just to commit yourself and say god. I'm gonna I'm gonna just worship you fully and I'm going to be obedient to whatever you're saying to do right now in my life and see if God doesn't meet you. I'll bet he will. Some of the reasons people don't experience the living God, I just put them out there. Apathy is an easy one, right? Paul was zealous. Paul was, Paul was really zealous. He was zealous the wrong way, but God looked at zealous the wrong way and he said, I can use that. In Revelation, Jesus says, I wish you were hot or you were cold, but you're lukewarm, you're just living in the middle. You're just living in the middle of everything, and I, I'm going to vomit you out, which, whatever it is, doesn't sound good, right? He says, I, I, can't, I can't have space for you if you do that. Second is that sometimes you leave it to other people, right? I don't know if Paul's companions experienced Jesus or not. Um, along the road, it seems like that they were just around it. Sometimes you can be around it, and you can think, well, that's for other people, but it's not for me, and again, that's just a lie. Um, and then the last thing is pride. An unwillingness to ask for help, I think, keeps so many people from the experience of God, right? Paul would never have fully experienced God without going to Ananias' house. And just ask somebody. Ask somebody to pray for you. If you want a deeper experience of the presence of God, I would encourage you to just, just ask someone to pray for you. What's the worst that could happen? The other application for us, I think, is in the crowd's response. Like I said, it's a struggle to imagine how offended they are. Uh, There's a parable that Jesus tells that gives us a little more uh, view of of what it's like uh, for them to be offended. It's in Matthew chapter 20. It's the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Uh, If you know this story, I would encourage you, sometimes around here we call that the parable of the people who arrive early and don't want to move so late people can get a seat. Right? All right. So. So you're like, why should I have to move? There's, I got here early. Um, they can scoot. All right. So enough. You deal. That's you and the Lord. All right. So Matthew 20, verse one says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever's right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the 11th hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one's hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. That's the first key that he's not going to be very fair. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only an hour, they said. You've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. Can you feel that in the Israelites' response, in the, in the crowd's response to what Paul's doing? But he answered one of them, friend, I am not being, un, am I, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? It's God saying, didn't you agree to, to be loved by me, right? Isn't that what I offered you was love? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? There's that word, envious again. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Who would it make you angry for God to use to teach you about him? Who would you dismiss? Who would it fire you up if God was like, no, no, no. That's the person who I'm going to use to teach you that about me. I thought about parents and children how difficult that is, right? Grayson, Ben, if God was like, no, I'm teaching you through your parents when they take away your phone. I'm just using that. They're like, no, not at all, right? They, That's wrong, right? And and the same thing with parents. I was thinking about this with my own son, Will. I pray every night that Will will hear God's voice. Every night, I pray, God, let him hear your voice. Let him experience you, all these things. The other day, um, we're working through some issues related to kind of where our kids are gonna go to school. And the other day, I was driving with Will. And Will looked at me and he said this. He said, Dad, I think God's telling me to go to school blank. And you know what I did? I said, Hallelujah, my son heard the Lord. No, I dismissed him completely. And I said, He's a kid. He's just saying something, right? He's just saying something because he wants to make me happy or because he heard me say it or whatever. And I just him. I hold my own son in contempt. I ask God to speak to me through him. And I dismiss him. Are you dismissing those things? Millennials, I'm not going to look you in the eye right now, but I just want to talk to you for a minute. Could it be that some of those things that older people are critical of, God is using to teach you? Maybe he's teaching you about finances. Maybe he's teaching you about perseverance. Now, older people, I will look you in the eye because I'm you. What if God is using millennials to stir these things up in your heart, and they're not just annoying, but God may, may be making them right in some areas. To stir you up towards envy. The thing I texted David about was, I said, should I talk about political positions? I don't think I'm going to. <laughs> but but I'll, I'll, I'll just say this. What if you're of a particular political persuasion and God wants to use somebody of a different political persuasion to teach you something about his heart? Would you even listen? Would you even listen or would you start the sentence the way so many of us start the sentence and be critical and say, well, if you are such a Christian and then fill in the blank with what you think because you're right about your position and they need to know they're wrong. Or could we even begin to recognize that God might be using other people from other places and other positions to stir something up within us? Who are those people? Who are the people you just missed, the people that aren't, don't have it as together as you do? And so they don't get to be used by God to speak into your life. I imagine with the video of this young woman, what if, what if those people who've been talking to her and praying for her, what if they said, well, you're a Muslim, what do you have to say to me? And they've never even approached her. Is that a place where God is stirring us up what if God's goal for us with the people we disagree with is not that we would jump on social media and destroy them and find the things wrong with their arguments so that we can pick them apart and say well when this happened you did this what if that wasn't God's goal what if instead God's goal is in hate or proving other people wrong but what if God's looking all of us and he's saying I'm trying to stir you guys up to get all of me I'm trying to stir you guys up so you don't align by these areas anymore, but you recognize that Jesus Christ came and in him there is no male or female or Jew or Greek or slave or free, but in him we will find wholeness in God if we will just trust him to use grace to make up the difference between us. So we're going to close. Um, Bo's going to come up. I just have a couple of things as Bo starts to play and I just want us to sit again like we did earlier and I just want us to ask God uh, to, to speak to our hearts and then as God speaks to your heart about any of these particular issues that we're going to ask him to speak to I would really encourage you um, we're going to have people up here to pray if you're, if you're praying today if you're going to pray if you could go ahead and come up and be available go ahead and come up now um, and I would encourage you to let These folks be your Ananias today. Just let them be your Ananias today. Be a friend who encourages, who prays for. So, here are the areas. I just want you to think about this. If you want to, if it'll help you focus, you can close your eyes. The first is this where are you settling? We prayed about this a little bit in worship, but where are you settling when it comes to God? are you settling because you're not you're not willing to ask difficult questions you don't want to ask difficult questions are you settling because you've decided that the experience of God is either fake or not for you there's this prayer um, I didn't come up with it I was taught it by somebody who was taught it by somebody else but This idea of of when you can't even say, I want the experience of God, I want God. You can at least say, I want to want God. And you can take that back as far as you need to, and that God will meet you there. But where are you settling and where do you need to say, God, I want that? The second question is this, where are you blind? You know, Paul, even after he received the Lord, he, he couldn't see. And he needs somebody to meet with him so that he could see, not just not just physically did God allow him to see, but spiritually God connected him and allowed him to see. Again, are there areas that you're just blind? And, and particularly, um, I don't think you're blind. Uh, I think that's for people today, Not you're not belligerently blind. You're not blind because you don't care. You're blind because you just don't know. Like, you just don't know what to do. Is there an area in your life where you're blind? And then the last area is this, and this is pretty difficult, but where do you need to repent? Where have you hated or judged, dismissed, tried to prove other people wrong? Thought that life is a game where you win and others lose. You get to be right and other people get to be wrong. Where do you need to repent? Where do you need to admit that we're all wrong and it's God who's right? And find some sort of reconciliation with people that may not think the same as you. So I just want you to, we're just going to take a minute. I just want you to ask God to speak to your mind, speak to your gut, if you're somebody like me. And what's he saying to you in the midst of this? I think the Lord wants us to know that it's His kindness that that brings us to repentance over some of these issues. God doesn't want us to miss out. We are we are citizens of no ordinary city. God wants to see us embrace every bit of our citizenship. He doesn't want us to settle. He doesn't want us to walk around blind. He doesn't want us to have hard hearts. So we're going to worship. There are people up here to pray. And I just want to encourage you to respond as, as you feel led to, to hear God speaking in your mind and in your heart and to respond, but not to delay, not to delay. Scripture says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So you God, to pray for all of us. God, that that the Bible shows us that it is about you but for us. God, that we would live into this calling that we have as citizens of no ordinary city and that we would respond without delay to what you're speaking to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.